When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 3, Episode 17. The Colonies Are Revolting. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Dr. Samuel Hume. Before we begin, I have to thank the new additions to the House of Lords, Charles, Earl of Crewe in the County Palatine of Chester, and Edward, Baron Franks. Like all of our patrons, they can now listen to this episode and every other episode ad-free. The new Earl of Crewe can also listen to the bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica to find out more. Last week, we ended our series of episodes on the Cromwellian settlement of Ireland the ruthless strategy of the Tory war, the transplantation of Irish Catholic landowners and the confiscation of their land, the distribution of that confiscated land to English beneficiaries, and the transportation of Irish soldiers, clergy and civilians out of Ireland, to Europe or to English colonies. By 1657, Ireland was firmly back in the English and future British Empire. But though Ireland may have been England's first colony, By the 1650s, it was far from its only one. As we covered at the start of Season 3, the earth-shattering news of the regicide of Charles I had reached the American and Caribbean colonies in the summer of 1649. Some colonies, particularly the New England colonies, had sympathised with Parliament in the civil wars. Many colonists returned home to contribute to the struggle. But on the news of the regicide, and the constitutional revolution that followed, their reaction was muted. Back in England, the Council of State noticed this lack of celebration, but the new regime's colonial concerns were more focused on the royalist colonies. Their reaction was definitely not muted. The colonies of Antigua, Barbados, Bermuda, Virginia, Newfoundland, and Maryland all proclaimed Charles II as their king. The Council of State was, let's say, displeased, by their flouting of Parliament's Act prohibiting just that. Virginia, the first successful English settlement in America, was also a crown colony. When the Virginia Company had been dissolved, direct royal administration of the colony replaced it. The monarch appointed the governor and his council, and instructed them on how he wanted them to govern. But that was the limit of his power. This meant a hands-off approach, at least compared to company rule, and the Virginians liked it that way. The House of Burgesses, filled by Virginian planters and landowners, had increased in influence, and combined with the governor, the Virginian government was highly autonomous, but it also had a more direct connection to the crown. 
There was no company or proprietor between them and the king. In many ways, the king was their proprietor. Sympathy with the royalist cause in the civil wars was cemented after Parliament attempted to restore the Virginia Company. Personal allegiance, economic self-interest, and political sympathy combined among the elite Virginians, and so Virginia remained the most royalist of the colonies. In 1648, Governor William Berkeley began persecuting independents in the colony, blaming their religious nonconformity for bringing God's wrath down on the king. When the news of the regicide reached Jamestown, Berkeley did not hesitate. He proclaimed Charles II as his king, and he railed against the, quote, horrid, monstrous, impious, and heretical treason. Later that year, in October, the House of Burgesses met and enacted harsh laws against anyone who supported the regicide or denied Charles II was the rightful king. They were so incensed and outraged that news pamphlets in London suggested that the Virginians would prefer independence over association with the revolutionary commonwealth. The situation in Virginia's neighbour, Maryland, was more complicated. Maryland was a proprietary colony of Lord Baltimore, a Catholic, who established the colony as a haven for English Catholics. To say that Baltimore found the 1640s a stressful decade would be underselling it. Well aware that his Catholicism and his loyalty to Charles made him suspect to parliamentarians, he attempted to convince them that he was no threat. Jesuits were restricted from operating in the colony, and Catholic Marylanders were urged to keep a low profile. He invited New England Protestants to settle in Maryland, and then made similar offers to Virginian Puritans who became increasingly uncomfortable in Royalist Anglican Virginia. He appointed one of those Virginian Puritans, William Stone, as the colony's governor, replacing the Catholic and Royalist Thomas Green, and he ordered the drafting of an Act of Toleration which forbade any persecution of Christians, regardless of their particular denomination. Baltimore worked very hard to persuade Parliament that his continued proprietorship of Maryland was not dangerous. So imagine his surprise and his frustration when news arrived late in 1649 that Maryland had proclaimed Charles II. But, to Baltimore's relief, that wasn't entirely true. When Governor Stone had been away in Virginia, his deputy and predecessor, Thomas Green, had overstepped his authority and made the proclamation. Stone had clearly suspected that his deputy might act out, committing a little light treason, and he'd left documents with Maryland's Secretary of State, which, when used, would strip Green of his office. Unfortunately for Stone, and Baltimore, the proclamation got out before that document could be used or Stone could return. Once Stone got back, the proclamation was rescinded, but it left Baltimore fighting fires in London. He used the distance and difficulties in communication as excuses to explain why his colony had seemingly got confused. But it was all fine now. Everything was fine. Please don't take away my colony. The Council of State accepted his explanation and commitments of loyalty, for now. In the Atlantic Island colony of Bermuda, the governor was pressured by angry crowds to declare for the king, and demanded other concessions, including the issuing of an oath of allegiance, the restoration of the church to a pre-war Laudian form, and the punishment of non-conforming Protestants. The governor, Thomas Turner, 
agreed to all the conditions with the exception of the last one, but he dragged his feet in actually proclaiming Charles II. Royalist Bermudans were not satisfied, and Turner was deposed as governor. The independents on the island were expelled, placed on a boat, and sent to the Bahamas. The Bahamas had already been settled a few years before by a group of Bermudan independents. The colony of Eleuthera was republican and congregationalist, radical in many ways. There is an argument that, if it had succeeded, the colony would be the first true democracy in the Western Hemisphere. But it didn't succeed. The Bahaman soil was poor quality, and many of the original colonists would leave. The new intake of expelled Bermudans, some of them were returning to Eleuthera, gave the small colony a bit of a boost. The new Bermudan governor, John Trimmingham, quickly cast about for allies, and he sent overtures to Barbados. An alliance was not forthcoming from the Barbadian government, as their neutral position still stood, as we'll cover in a second, but they did sell the Bermudans some ammunition and supplies. The royalist reaction in Barbados was delayed almost a year after they received news of the regicide, but they made up for lost time. When the governor, Philip Bell, learnt of the death of the king and the proclamation of the Commonwealth, he continued Barbados's policy of neutrality. This neutrality was far from embraced by all Barbadians, and sympathisers of both king and parliament grew increasingly restless. Resentment built until the spring of 1650. A party of royalists in the parliament of Barbados passed legislation, which started life as a bill for freedom of conscience, but was amended until it required colonists to swear oaths to support the government. The parliamentary opposition, by which I mean the supporters of the English parliament in the Barbados parliament, saw this as a potential danger to them. They convinced Governor Bell to delay publication of the legislation while they circulated a petition which called for new elections. Then, the royalist conspirators struck. With this interference as their justification, they circulated their own pamphlets, which accused parliamentarian sympathisers of planning to subject Barbados to tyrannical government, and explicitly called for violent resistance instead of legal channels because the parliamentarians were all too rich and powerful to be subject to the law. Planters, their most trusted white indentured servants, and white freemen armed themselves and mustered on one side or another. A civil war on Barbados looked possible, and that terrified the plantocracy. The reason that maintaining the peace throughout the 1640s had been so important to Governor Bell was because Bell and the planters, whatever their political allegiance, sat at the top of a very unstable pyramid. Barbados's economy was built on the back of enslaved and indentured labour. Enslaved Africans and indigenous Americans worked alongside indentured white servants. Though the numbers of former prisoners of war were yet to reach the heights we covered last week, indentured labourers certainly had their grievances against their masters, as of course did the enslaved. And combined, they outnumbered the white freemen and especially the planter elites. If Barbados's elite and their clients got distracted by, you know, shooting at each other, then the workers they usually kept firmly under heel might slip out from under it. The situation in Barbados was eerily similar to the one in Haiti a century and a half later. But unlike in Haiti, 
A violent conflict was nipped in the bud when Governor Bell accepted the conditions of the royalist faction and Charles II was proclaimed as king. The Parliament of Barbados voted to welcome a governor appointed by Charles II. Charles's chosen governor, Lord Willoughby, had been promising to visit his new domains for a while now, and so Barbados officially invited him. In the meantime, the royalists would govern the colony. To everyone's surprise, Willoughby landed on Barbados just days after Bell capitulated and the royalist conspiracy seized power, because Willoughby had finally decided to make good on his promises and actually set sail for the Caribbean. It was very inconvenient timing for the royalist conspirators, because for all their talk of supporting the king, they'd expected him and his agents to remain safely on the other side of the Atlantic, at least for a while. Humphrey and Edward Walrand, two brothers who had been at the forefront of the conspiracy, had barely got their feet under the table before Willoughby stepped onto land four days later, with all the pomp and ceremony of a colonial governor appointed by the king. All they could do was grin and bear it. What was the alternative? They'd seized power in the king's name. They could hardly oppose the king's choice of governor. But the Walrens and Willoughby came to a surprising accommodation. Willoughby, who had only just arrived, agreed to defer taking up his position as governor for three months. His commission as governor wasn't just for Barbados, but for all the islands claimed by England, including Antigua, Nevis, Montserrat, St Kitts, and Santa Cruz. He'd go visit them, get the lay of the land before he took up his formal position in Barbados, He'd leave the colony in the competent hands of the Walrens for the time being, for them to govern in the island's best interests. And so off Willoughby went on his Caribbean cruise. But it didn't go great. With the exception of Antigua, he struggled to get the cooperation of the other Caribbean islands, most of which were desperate to remain neutral. St Kitts justified their continued neutrality by saying that they were waiting for assurances from either Parliament or the King that their self-government would be protected. And anyway, there was no precedent on St. Kitts for proclaiming a king, and it wasn't specified in their patent, so they didn't think they needed to. Never mind that St. Kitts had barely been settled by the English when James VI and I died. This was their excuse, and they stuck to it. Willoughby had about as much success with the other colonies. Back in Barbados, the Walrens certainly began governing the island in the best interests of someone, they had the Barbados Parliament purged of parliamentarians, and then passed an act of indemnity for their previous and future acts. Notable royalists were summoned to Parliament and fined significant sums. Many others had seen which way the wind was blowing, and had already left into exile, either to other colonies or, importantly, back to England. Many parliamentarians, labelled delinquents, were banished but those who cooperated and didn't make a fuss about their banishment could keep their estates in absentia. Those who didn't play along had their estates sequestered and sold, and this included some of the wealthiest men in Barbados. The deadline for exile was July, which just happened to be right before Willoughby was due to return and take up his position. This was surely a coincidence, and not at all intended to get the Walrens' agenda out of the way before Willoughby could interfere. Definitely not. Because Willoughby did interfere. Upon his return, he took a conciliatory stance immediately, 
suspending the sequestration of estates and removing the leaders of the royalist coup from office, including the Walruns. Now, I don't think Willoughby left Barbados in their hands out of political naivety. Instead, I suspect he understood what the Walruns intended to do and let them be the bad guys. Then he could come back, act horrified at their ruthlessness, dial back some of their policies, and present himself as a moderate, but now with the most notable troublemakers exiled and penniless. Then he could find a middle path between the king and the commonwealth. And he did try to appease London. He sent George Martin, brother of Henry Martin, to Westminster to plead his case, and he pressed London merchants trading at Barbados to go back and sing his praises as governor. He would work with the Commonwealth if they'd let him, and he hoped that his submission, and the difficulty England traditionally had in projecting force over the Atlantic Ocean, would mean he'd keep his new job, even if the king had been the one who gave it to him. With Bermuda and Barbados, we see two very different royalist reactions to the regicide. Bermuda experienced a popular uprising in favour of the king, which forced the government's hand. Barbados's royalist switch was due to one faction of elites in conflict with another faction of elites. It was a top-down affair, whereas Bermuda was more of a bottom-up one. Bermuda also faced more religious strife than Barbados, where the conflict was more political. But remember how I mentioned that some exiled Barbados parliamentarians went to England? Well, they told everyone how horrible the royalists had been. The violent rhetoric of their pamphlets only fanned those flames, and parliamentary newsprints described in vivid detail how royalists had violently expelled their enemies. Unfortunately for Willoughby, the invitation from the Barbados Parliament and the timing of his arrival on the island did not help him here. Arriving so soon after the events, it became taken as fact that he had been involved in the conspiracy. The fact that Willoughby had been in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when everything went down, and that he'd later been a moderate, was nowhere near as publicised. Though merchants and traders who dealt with Barbados urged for peaceful reconciliation, they didn't want war to disrupt their profitable business, the exiled planters demanded a much harder line. They wanted their land back, they wanted their slaves back, and they had a powerful influence over how the Commonwealth crafted its colonial policy. Partly at the urging of the Barbadian exiles, the Council of State would decide on an aggressive and uncompromising strategy. In October 1650, the Rump Parliament of the Commonwealth passed the Act for Prohibiting Trade with the Barbados, Virginia, Bermuda and Antigua. This act put into law an informal embargo which had started in August, and it targeted the four colonies which had been the most publicly royalist. You might have noticed that neither Newfoundland or Maryland were included in this act. The proprietor of Newfoundland, David Kirk, was resident in the colony, and judged to be responsible for its royalist sympathies. He was ordered arrested, and was transported back to England for trial on the seasonal fishing fleet. That was that, nice and straightforward. Maryland was excluded because Baltimore had assured the Council of State that his colony was loyal. The other four, Virginia under Berkeley, Bermuda under Trimmingham, and Barbados and Antigua under Willoughby, were deemed in rebellion. The Act warned that any ship 
from English or foreign ports which traded with these colonies would be subject to seizure and the confiscation of their goods. If it could be enforced, the royalist colonies would be in serious trouble. Three of them were relatively small islands that relied on trade to sell their goods and, more importantly, feed themselves. An embargo, and the military force that would be needed to enforce it, was a very dangerous threat. But the Act did more than that. The Act essentially voided the colonial charters of Virginia and the Caribbean colonies, and asserted the right of the Commonwealth Parliament to legislate and govern every aspect of colonial life. To quote from Carla Pastana in The English Atlantic in the Age of Revolution, quote, The Commonwealth of England's new policy announced that it would direct all the affairs of the plantations, including legislation and trade, working through the Council of State. This decision inaugurated a new era, creating for the first time the prospect of a centralised administration of all colonies. With this innovation, the structure of the future British imperial system began to fall into place. This was a threat to all the colonies, not just those who had declared for Charles II, and included those who had backed Parliament all along. This included the colonies of New England, who were horrified at the precedent the Act set. Though the New England colonies were granted a delay before the embargo was enforced, in recognition of their loyalty to the parliamentary cause, the wider implications of the Embargo Act could not be ignored. Massachusetts Bay sent a petition to London, urging them to reconsider. The petition noted that, upon receiving word of the Act, they immediately stopped any trade with the prescribed colonies at great financial cost to Massachusetts. Of course, the embargo of those rebels was just, but the Act's claim to complete authority over all the colonies was an outrage. Quote, we, finding ourselves comprehended as wrapped in one bundle with all the other colonies, our case being different from all other English colonies in America, end quote. They had been supporters of Parliament, politically and ideologically. The petition also included a rejection of any suggestion that they return their royal charter and receive a parliamentary one instead. You might recall that one of Massachusetts's greatest benefits was that the original colonists took their charter with them which had protected them from interference from the king. They hoped, now that Parliament had won and a republic proclaimed, that, quote, it shall go no worse with us than it did under the late king. A less diplomatic response to the act came from Virginia, which surprises no one. Governor Berkeley spoke in the House of Burgesses, and his speech was sent to be printed in the Netherlands and distributed in Europe. He called the embargo heavy chains, and equated the Commonwealth's intentions towards Virginian royalists with slavery. Berkeley told the House that, quote, We can only fear the Londoners, who would fain bring us to the same poverty wherein the Dutch found and relieved us, would take away the liberty of our consciences and tongues, and our right of giving and selling our goods to whom we pleased, end quote. There was nothing to gain by submitting to the Commonwealth, and a lot to lose. The House of Burgesses issued their own declaration, and also sent it to be printed in the Netherlands. In this, they declared the colony's intention to keep trading with England and the other colonies, and merchants of other nations. Virginian trade would be protected by force if it came down to it. The Embargo Act certainly had an impact. It revealed to the colonies what the new regime's policy towards them was going to be, and they did not like it. 
it displayed the ambition of the Council of State. Previous governments, limited by geography and resources, had mostly left the colonies in a state of benign neglect. Proprietorships, company colonies, and even crown colonies had claimed or been granted wide-ranging autonomy in their own affairs. With the principles expressed in the Embargo Act, the Commonwealth clearly intended to maintain a much stronger grip over colonial affairs, and it believed it could enforce its will. And it intended to enforce that will not only on Englishmen, but on any foreign state which violated the terms of its embargo. Perhaps most famously, the Act will set the foundations of another, more famous, colonial act, the Navigation Act. Next time, we will see how the Commonwealth intends to make good on its bold claims through a massive naval expansion, and the projection of English power throughout the Atlantic. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duchess of Wellington, Sue Bremner, the Marquess of Buckingham, Daryl Parker, and the Earl of Huntington, David Morehouse. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to join their ranks, and listen to the podcast without ads. Remember that you can join the mailing list to get news about the show by going to the link in the description. For other great podcasts on the Airwave Network, such as My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, check out airwavemedia.com. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. <laughs>